Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today is the 11th show and uh, a couple things that I wanted to mention from a logistics standpoint to make sure that everybody gets this. Remember that the first midterm exam is going to be coming up in a couple weeks. And what, uh, as I've mentioned many, many, many times now, gazillion times, because we rebroadcast this class and we use it in different venues, we're not mentioning the actual date. What I'm asking you to do is to go to the Blackboard website. Now, I even have a gentleman here in the room that has sat in this room and watched me talk about this and still asked me the question again today. He happens to be over here on the right-hand side, so don't feel alone if you forgot, but it's important that you check. What I did, and Bob was going to pull it up here on the plasma screen in a second, is that what I did is I put an exam schedule. I put a button right on the, your Blackboard website for this class. You go to Blackboard, you click on that button, and you're going to get a thing that will say exam schedule. When you click on that schedule, what will happen is for this semester that we're teaching it now, and for every semester, whenever you're taking this class, you'll always go there and check, and I'll always have the dates and the times and the locations of the exams. Also, in addition to that, in case for whatever reason you do not know how to get to this college campus or you don't know where these buildings are on the college campus, I've also included a link down the bottom of the page, which is the same thing you'd see on the back of the course catalog with where the building's located on campus. Remember that it's very, very, very important, extremely important, that you get here so that we are ready to start when the exam starts. We cannot have you coming late. We're only asking you to come to campus. Uh, I think we have the orientation in three exams. That's four times. And the reason why is because either, in a lot of cases, I have to schedule these exam rooms, and there's students in there before, and there's students in there after, plus I, in some cases I have classes to teach. So when I say that we're going to start at a specific time, that means that you'll be sitting in your chair with your number two pencil, your Scantron 882, and you'll be ready to rock and roll, okay, and take that exam. You should have downloaded the study guide. I keep mentioning this over and over again. That is the exam. I don't know how to make it any clearer than that. You should have taken it. You should have downloaded it. You should have read it. You should have looked up all the answers. There's no reason why you should not get 100 on that if you do that, because I've had many students that have gotten 100 on that exam. You should go through all those processes that are necessary to make sure that you, making sure that it is the right exam. In other words, when you look at the question, eliminate all the answers that are incorrect and make sure you know why they're incorrect. Look for any key words that I've thrown in there, like that disqualifiers, like not or all, that may throw you off. I'm trying to prepare you so that when you go down to take the state exam, that you go in and pass it the first time. And uh, that's really, really important. So that's why I'm trying really hard to get that information to you. The next thing that I wanted to mention to you is that I've had a couple students. In fact, there's one here in the room that's in, uh, on the left-hand side in the third row. This lady has said to me, when is the business plan going to be due? The business plan will be due the day that you take, a, take the second midterm exam. And what will happen on that day, you are going to come in, and I mean everybody. I don't want anybody sending it to me electronically. I went through that last semester where I said, oh, just send it to me that way. And I spent four days downloading, categorizing, and printing documents and trying to sort it all out. So what I want you to do is when you take your second midterm, not your first, your second midterm exam, 
you will come in, you will take your exam, and then when you come up to turn in your Scantron 882, you will put in your Scantron in one pile and you'll put your business plan in the second pile, and the other pile. Remember that is on the second midterm exam, not the first, the second. Okay, I want to be really clear about that. Uh, otherwise, I think we're pretty much ready to get started on this today. What we're going to be talking about is the information that's contained in the chapter on purchase offer. Remember, you, we're using version uh, if, uh, version or printing uh, version uh, number five of this book, this textbook that we're using by the uh, uh, Uber book. And uh, we're going to be basically talking about the purchase offer. So what I'm going to be doing is switching a couple things around in here and uh, bring up... Uh, the purchase offer on the uh, document camera over here. This again is in your uh, book. It's uh, according to this right now, it's in chapter six, purchase offer. What this is, is this whole entire chapter, every single thing in this chapter deals with how to correctly fill this document out. That may not seem to be that important to you all. It may seem like, hey, you know what, it's a form. That's all it really is. It's a piece of paper. And yet it's the farthest thing from the truth. What's really important about this is this is the contract. This is the contract between the buyer and the seller. If there's anything that goes wrong with this transaction, in other words, uh, the uh, buyer doesn't, for example, remove their contingencies in time, or the seller doesn't provide the right documentation. Guess what? This is the contract that is going to be showing up in a court of law. And they're going to be looking at this contract to see if you, fill, you, you who are the agent, you who are getting paid the big commission, fill this out correctly. And that's why I say why they spend this much time going over every single solitary line item. And by the way, even after you take this and you go to work for somebody, you're probably going to have a course at the, uh, at your, uh, whoever the broker you're working for where they're going to sit down and spend another four or five hours going over this contract. It is that absolutely critical importance. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to initially show you what the contract looks like, sort of filled out, and then we're going to touch on some paragraphs, and then I'm going to show you in the book where it explains what goes into that paragraph. What you really want to do, though, is from a purchase offer standpoint, you probably are going to want to sit down and make sure you put additional notes next to these. Okay, This is absolutely critical. I, can't, I just can't overemphasize how important these contracts are when you fill them out. If something doesn't go right, if somebody's name is spelled wrong, or you have the wrong property address or the wrong deposit or you do something wrong, it can blow the entire transaction. It's absolutely crucial that you fill it out correctly, that the client sign it, that it is accepted, and that your broker reviews it and makes sure that it's correct. You want to get all that done. Very, very important document. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to do is... Uh, uh, probably jump over here, if I, if you will, to uh, just a couple things I want to mention as we go along here. This is on one of the pages. Evaluation of the purchase contract. This is writing an offer is a, is, is a vital step in the art of bringing the buyers and the sellers together, and care should be taken to word it simple and in concise language. Again, this is a very important document. You want to spend a lot of time. Uh, I mean, you don't want to take, especially with the cost of fuel today, 
put your clients in your car and drive them all over the neighborhood and show them houses, you know, and then finally have them find something that they're interested in, and then you fill the contract out incorrectly or put something down there that can be misinterpreted by the listing, uh, by the people that are trying to sell the property and the deal gets blown. You really want to spend your time. I mean, it's like as if you, if, if you don't fill it out correctly, it's just like you took 30, 40, 50, 100 hours worth of your work and just threw it away. That's how important it is that this contract's filled out right. And by the way, again, when something goes wrong, the first solitary thing that they're going to pull out of their files is this contract. They're going to say, what is it that that guy promised that he said he was going to do? And that's the thing that's going to go into litigation or it's going to be in arbitration or mitigation or something, this contract. And people will pick this thing apart and they will apply the law and why you did what you did, why you said what you did. Okay. Uh, another thing I want to mention here is uh, what was once commonly called the deposit re receipt is now usually referred to as the purchase contract or the purchase agreement. Essentially what they're saying is that this was usually in the beginning was more or less like, you know, if you will, like a, a simple deposit. You know, like uh, if you go to a lot of places and fill out, you're even going to rent something like a piece of equipment or a snowmobile or a car or something like that. You give them a deposit and you fill this out. And in the beginning, all it maybe was was just a deposit that just said, hey, I'm going to buy that house and here's my check. Well, now this is much more in-depth, covers a lot more information. So that's why it's that important. Uh, I'm going to point out, I'm going to flip through this fairly quickly. Starting on, the, I believe in this book, at least page 209, is an example of this contract, which we're going to kind of take apart and talk about. This by no means is the entire contract. Remember, this contract can have an offer. You know, this is the purchase offer. It can have addendums to the purchase offer. It could be present, have been presented to the client or to the person that's selling, and they could have, an, they could have a counter offer. So this contract can get to be fairly detailed as it goes along. But essentially, we're talking about this contract here. The first part of this usually deals with, uh, and th these are the paragraphs we're going to take apart, usually deals with the date and the time and who the contract is between, where the deposits are going to go, um, how much money is going to be uh, financed, how much money is going to be put on deposit, how much money the sales price is going to be. Okay, It's going to cover some contingencies that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, it'll do things like, for example, look at the fact of how long the buyer has to get fin financing lined up. That's why it's absolutely crucial that you make sure your client is financially capable of buying the property. You don't want to go ahead and make a purchase offer and then go to all that work only to find out the person is not qualified. That's why it's crucial that you make sure they are. Get them sitting down with an agent or to, with a loan officer and make sure that they qualify both from the ability to make the monthly payment, in other words, they make enough money and that their credit history is good enough to do it. Otherwise, it doesn't do any good to take and show them any property if they can't afford it. So anyway, you're going to see all of these different things. There's all going to be all kinds of contingencies. There's going to be a loan contingency. There's going to be an appraisal contingency, all kinds of contingencies. All a contingency essentially means is that there's a certain period of time in which certain things have to be accomplished. If they are not co accomplished on time, then there's, a, then there's a possibility that the contract can be null and void. Also, if you have a contingency in a contract, and this is important, if you have any contingency, you need to make sure, 
absolutely make sure that the client signs off that the contingency has been removed. What you don't want to do is once they are once they see the appraisal and they are they feel comfortable that the appraisal is the right amount of money, then get them to remove the contingency. If they look at a title report, have them remove the contingency. What you don't want to have happen is to have those contingencies dragging on forever and ever. Very, very important. We have a question from the gentleman in the right-hand side in the second row. Go ahead. Go ahead, press the button and hold it while the, no, hold it while the red light's on. Hold it down. Hold the button down. Okay, now go ahead and say something. Keep holding. Okay. Go ahead. Um, when you say remove contingencies, do they do that by initial, or is there a form? There should be a f there should be a form, something in writing, in which they are going to remove it. They are going to get rid of it. The reason why I say that is because of the fact that there's a certain period. If you read the contract, and we'll see that when you read the contract, they're supposed to remove it. They're given so many days to remove it. It doesn't say that if they, there's nowhere in the contract that I can recollect that it says, oh, by the way, if they don't remove it in 10 days or 17 days or 20 days or whatever, the contract is null and void. It's just the fact that you're saying they have up to this amount of time to remove that contingency, which means they have so many days. At the end of those number of days, they need to take some kind of action to make sure that's removed. Now, the reason why I say initial and sign and all that other stuff is because you may find out, I could say, oh, well, there's a form that you fill out, maybe you sign it. So there might be certain kinds of forms. Or you may work for a brokerage that positively requires a document that has been created by their legal department that removes contingencies because they've been sued over it. So that's what all I'm saying is that you need to make sure that whatever the appropriate document is that's necessary that's required by your brokerage or the other brokerage. Make sure that your clients sign it and remove it. Get rid of it. Yes. Go ahead. Press the button and hold it. Okay. Um, so then when they remove it, they're going to obviously sign some form or initial it. And do both parties have to sign that, um, that piece of paper with the ink? Or can it be done through the fax machine? Or how does that all that... That, that that would depend upon the particular circumstance. There's so many things that are done now. Go ahead. There's so many things done now that are done through fax that are done. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if anything is done with pencil, but that are done with fax, you know, where people will send things and send signed copies and fax them, to, fax them over. The important point that I want to get across is this. And I could spend hours talking about all the various ways that we could do it. The most important thing for you to get is this, is that when you make a purchase offer, I don't care what the purchase offer is. 99.999% of the time, it is contingent upon something. Contingent upon an appraisal, contingent upon a termite report, contingent upon a home inspection. Getting financing, and I could go on down the list of things that could be contingent upon. Contingent upon a pool inspector, a roof inspector, um, all those things. The big thing that you want to do is you want to make absolutely sure that whatever is necessary, let me make that clear, whatever is necessary to make sure that that contingency is formally and legally removed needs to be done. Yes, one more question. After the contingency is removed, need to push the button and hold while... Keep the red light on. Keep the red light on, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. After the contingency is removed, uh, house inspection, uh, $10,000 in repairs, does that come from the purchase price or do you share it with the... Uh, I, like, 
when you have that cost, who pays for that? Okay. This question is this, is that if you have a home inspection, an inspection, we use a home inspection as an example, but it could be a pool inspection, a roof inspection, a termite inspection, but let's just say a home inspection. You say that uh, your offer is contingent upon a home inspection. What happens is, is the home inspector goes out there, and by the way, we're going to have a home inspector uh, on our evening show come in and talk. He's going to be, uh, uh, Andy uh, Dickerson, Dixon is going to come in and talk about home inspections. But the important point is, is the fact you have a home inspector. The home inspector has found things wrong with the property, okay? What happens is, is that home inspector writes up a report. Those reports sometimes can be as simple as a you know two or three page document that's a form you fill out with a bunch of check boxes, or in the case that this one gentleman that's going to come in has a very formal report with photographs of where the problems are, with uh, citations of where the um, where the defects are and what code they're violating. In other words, what, what building code they're violating. The thing is, is that once that report is done, who pays to get that stuff fixed is all based on your negotiate how you negotiate it okay so for example I sold a house a couple years ago I had a home inspector come in and inspect my house there were things that I you know that when the report was presented to me by the buyer's agent through my agent I said yes I'll fix that that needs to be taken care of that needs to be taken care of I'll take care of that I'll take in other words I just said I'm gonna do it how I paid for it is irrelevant what I was doing is just saying I'm going to hire somebody and I'm going to take care of it. Okay? There were also things in that report that I said I disagree with. You know, is there a problem with it? Is there a defect? Is there something wrong? Yes, but I am not going to fix it. So I took the stand to say, listen, I acknowledge the fact that that might be something that might be wrong. I am not going to correct it. Take it or leave it. It's a used house. So I can do that. Now, at that point in time, <clears throat> the buyer hears my response back. The buyer can do one of two things. The buyer can either say, yes, I accept what Pat said. I accept that he'll fix what he said he's going to fix, and I'll, I acknowledge the fact that there were things that he feels he's not going to fix. Okay. Now, at that time, he, can either, he or she can either accept that, or they can turn around and say, well, I want Pat to fix it. And if Pat doesn't fix it, the deal is gone. Okay. It depends. Okay, but in my particular case, usually, usually, you know, because with the home inspector, the things that you need to correct are things like, uh, I don't know, like a toilet bowl that's loose on the floor that wiggles around. Because the the uh, I had that situation where the um, the uh, seal on the bottom it's made out of uh, can't think of the right term right now. It's yeah, be like a beeswax, okay? So it needed to be tightened down. And there were several other things that I needed to correct. I, you know, you live in a house for 20 years, you still don't realize there's a problem. But then the home inspector at the same time wrote up a couple things, like, for example, you know, the oven door, okay? I could probably count on my hands and toes how many times my wife and I ever used that oven from the whole time we lived there because of the fact that we both work full time and we very rarely do that except for. Thanks. You know, we're not you opening and closing. It's one of those things where it closed, and occasionally you had to push it a little bit to get it to close. The spring wouldn't close. Range and oven worked like brand new. Okay, I wasn't about to tear that out, and, you know, and spend another two thousand dollars because that door didn't move. Okay, so I said I'm not going to fix it. I took a stand on it. I said I'm not going to fix it. They said okay. 
we'll take it the way it is. So that's it. You know, that's that's the way it is. It's negotiated. Um, there are certain things that the home inspector is going to find that in some cases can be code violations that need to be corrected. For example, you'll see in your disclosure where you're required to say, for example, to make sure that the water heater that's in the house is braced so that in the event of a, an earthquake, it won't fall down. So you maybe didn't know that. You had an older house. The home inspector comes through and looks at it and says, you know what, you have a water heater. The water heater looks okay, but it's not properly braced. That has to be corrected. That has to be fixed. That's part of the things that have to be fixed when you buy the house. Uh, they may find some other things. They may find an electrical outlet that is not powered up. I mean, there's things that people will live with. It's amazing. You know, they'll find out that, you know, the outlet doesn't put out any power. Well, maybe the reason why they never knew that is because they never used the outlet. You know, they lived in the house all those years. There was two outlets in the bedroom. One of them was uh, an outlet that ran the, 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 the light on the nightstand. The other one was where a TV might be, but nobody ever put a TV in there. Home inspector comes through and they inspect for all that stuff. And it's very easy to do. I mean, you have these little devices you can check, and they write that up. Okay, so that's something that needs to be corrected. Okay, so, so that's, that's what you would normally negotiate. But the, uh, the point that I want to make really clear is that anytime you have a contingency, a contingency means that the deal is not going to go through until that event takes place. Once that event takes place, whatever that happens to be, then somebody needs to say, I've done it. It's completed. It is finite, finished, done. No longer a contingency. Deal can move forward, period. Otherwise, it'll just hang on there, you know, and nothing will happen. Um, down on this area here, you're going to see things like allocation of costs, who's going to pay, the, who's going to pay for escrow and title fees, all the other costs, um, uh, different types of disclosure statements that are required. Okay, in this case, statutory disclosures including lead-based disclosures. We'll talk about those in a minute. Um, I'm just kind of letting you know what's in the form, and then we'll pick it apart. You have, the disclosures continue to go down here. You have na uh, natural and environmental hazards. There's a disclosure in here on this page that deals with uh, database disclosure of, uh, of California, of, uh, I believe this is sexual offenders. Uh, database in here, I believe. Yeah. Okay. You have a disclosure in here that deals with uh, condominium plan unit development, meaning that if you're in a condominium unit, a townhouse where there's an association, or in a lot of cases, like where I live today, I'm in a homeowner's association, even so I have a single family house. So anybody that's going to buy my house, I need to make sure that they read those disclosures. Because they need to know, like, for example, oh, by the way, the garbage cans need to come in on, you know, Monday night or you're going to get fined. By the way, you can't have a motorhome in your, dri you know, in your driveway for more than 12 hours. They need to know that stuff. They need to read those. Um, you, anything that's uh, affecting the property, conditions affecting the property, items included or excluded, okay, which is uh, lighting and all that stuff. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Buyer's investigation of the property. Uh, this is where you're talking about the, the buyers, um, where they have the ability to investigate, research, find out about the property, do home inspections. Uh, repairs. Uh, in other words, any repairs that need to be done. Buyers indemnity, uh, protection for uh, to entry to the legal property. Title investing. 
Okay, title investing just means how they're going to hold title to the property. Sale of buyer's property. So I, I just want you to get the point that there, this is just, just look at each one of these items as we break them down. Okay. Um, let me see. Almost every contract that you're ever going to read is going to have something in there called the dispute resolution. We'll talk a little bit about that in the, in, in, in the end, but remember that you have, typically there's three ways that you can solve, four ways, if you will. The first and hopefully best way is that you just are, act like adults and you, you realize that you need to solve the problem and you fix it, okay? If you can't solve the problem by being just an adult and saying, yes, I should fix it or no, I'm not, you know, in other words, resolving it, then you have some, uh, some remedies to do that. We'll talk about that. One is mediation. Mediation to me is, is where you just bring in somebody and you bring in an independent third party. Their decision is not binding on either one of you. It's kind of like, in a way, like going to some form of counseling where hopefully this person, by coming in and listening to both sides and advising both sides, that they can help mitigate the, the, the disagreement that you may have. Doesn't cost, it's not as expensive as going to court or doing arbitration. Hopefully you'll be done with it. It's kind of that. The second one is arbitration. That's where you actually hire somebody or you use somebody and what they do is they listen to both sides of the case. Usually what ends up happening as a result of their, of their hearing both sides, they make a decision, which is like like rendering a legal opinion, saying, okay, you will fix the fence. Okay, you're, you're, you're required to do that. Okay. And um, anyway, so this all covers all that mediation and arbitration stuff. Okay, what you're trying to do is, is hard, as well as you can stay out of court. This area here talks about prorations, how you're going to handle things like prorations of property taxes and other kinds of things. Remember that what we'll talk about in more detail is that when you sell a piece of property, you may find out that the seller has already paid the property taxes, so they need to get some money back. You may find out that, if, especially if it's, a, if it's an investment piece of property, the seller may have already collected the rents for that month. Remember, rents are paid in advance. So if I'm selling a duplex and the person on the other side has paid their rent on, you know, like May 1st, and we're going to close the transaction, on uh, May 15th, and that we have some money that has to go, that money that's passed, remember the, 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 the renter has paid for the entire month. So the seller gets to keep up to May 15th, or you know the day before escrow closes, and then the buyer gets the rest of the month's rent. So that's called, uh, that's called prorations. So there can be a lot of different prorations that have to be done. Okay, withholding taxes. Withholding taxes essentially is, is wherever you're going to sell the property. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll kind of read that real quick if I can blow that up a little bit. It says, withholding taxes. Seller and buyer agree to execute any instrument, affidavit, statement, or instruction reasonably necessary to comply with the federal and California withholding law. And what that essentially means is the fact that, you know, if you are typically selling a piece of property and it's your primary residence and you've lived there and you've met all the conditions and if you're single it doesn't exceed two hundred fifty thousand and if you're married it's not five hundred thousand dollars you don't have an event that's taken place that you had to pay income taxes but if you're in a situation where you're selling an investment piece of property you may find that the escrow company is going to have to take and withhold that money and remit it to those organizations because what they don't want to have happen 
the government organizations, they don't want to have you get paid all of your money, <laughs> your big check, go to Hawaii, spend it, bought the, you know, the ski boat, you know, bought all the stuff, and then find out comes the end of the year you owe them money and they're not going to get it. They're going to say no, kind of like we have with our, when, we ha when we work at a company and they withhold income tax, the same situation. Okay, this will talk about things about MLS, multiple listing system. Okay, this is equal opportunity, uh, housing opportunity, selection of uh, service providers. And then this, con this part in here, which we'll talk about again, is something called time is of the essence. In other words, what we don't want to do is we don't want to drag this out. What we want to do is make an offer, have the buyer's agent give that offer to the seller's agent, the seller's agent present it to the seller, and have give them a certain period of time and say, okay, in 48 hours or 72 hours, you need to make a decision, either yay or nay, and let us know. Not six months. <laughs> okay. And they give you some definitions down the bottom of the contract so you can take a look at it and understand what in the world it is, what acceptance means, what close of escrow means, what car form means. So those are just a set of instructions. Um, on the next page, they are giving you, they're talking more about um, instructions. They're talking about agency disclosure. Uh, they're talking about potential uh, competing buyers and sellers. In other words, you're saying here that, you know, potentially competing buyers and sellers, buyer and seller each acknowledge receipt of disclosure of the possibility of multiple representations by the broker representing the, the principal. Okay, the disclosure may be part of the listing agreement. And essentially what we're doing is this is the part where you're disclosing to all parties, everybody, what your role is as an agent. Are you representing the buyer? Are you representing the seller? Are you representing the bo both of them? Okay, so anyway, this is pretty much, uh, I'm going to flip this over in a minute here. This is the expiration of the offer, which we'll talk about. This is where the buyer signs. This is where the seller signs. And uh, then this right here is uh, real estate brokers. Okay. So anyway, that's the basic contract. That's the basic, basic contract. Bottom of the line contract. Okay. Um, the first thing that they're going to talk about in, in explaining this stuff is they say they want to make you aware of the fact that interpretation of the form, I'm going to kind of zoom out of here on this. It says, when, print, when using a printed form, you must be entirely familiar with it and understand the importance of what, in, in, what you insert in the blanks. The written or typed word supersedes the printed word if there is a contradiction. What that essentially means is the fact that if you have the contract and it's printed, meaning that somebody has printed this, they've printed them by the gazillions, maybe bazillions, who knows, but a lot of them. And what happens is, is that there might be language in that contract that may or may not apply to everybody. And the way it goes is like this, is that one of the ways you can modify this contract is by typing. In other words, there's even a program called WinForms that you can type stuff in there, okay? If that typing that you do modifies in some way, shape, or form something that is on the pre-printed contract, then the typing part supersedes what's pre-printed, okay? If you handwrite something in, 
the handwriting supersedes what's pre-printed and supersedes what's typed. And the way that it usually goes is something like this. You know, you're the agent. You fill out the contract to the best of your ability. You type it all out. It looks really nice. You get to the client's house. You find out you make some kind of a mistake on the contract. And so you're going to handwrite something or you're going to add something in that's going to modify the contract. That is going to supersede what was typed if it nullifies it or changes it and also what was pre-printed. Just so you know the, the order in which things go. Okay. Um, I'm going to turn this over and start on this page right here. This is on the top of the contract. And what they're doing here is they're telling, they're giving you some information just so you know. We're going to kind of beat this to death a little bit. And again, this is, this is trying to take every single section or the majority of the sections in that contract and talk specifically about it. And the reason why is because you as an agent want to know this contract cold. You want to be able to explain exactly how this operates, how it works, what it means. If you're in doubt, you want to make sure that you find out what the answer is to it. Okay. First of all, up at the top of the contract, and this is just like it had on that contract, this is created by the California Association of Realtors. You also always want to make sure you're using the most current form. In fact, if, if you go and you were using, if once you become an agent, you're going to have a program called WinForms. And one of the things, the California Association of Realtors is the one that creates that program, that software. And they have updates to their forms. So you're always going to want to make sure you're using the most current form. And the reason why is because you could be using a form that may look okay, but there's been something that has just changed legally that needs to be. And we all know how laws change. You know, they go before, you know, here in California, they're going before, um, you know, our, uh, you know, before the Assembly and the Senate. And what happens is they argue back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the governor threatens he's going to veto it unless they put some language in there. And finally, it gets passed. And before you know it, bang, it's law. So it's important that you're, you use the most current form. Also up here, notice that it says that it says the title says California Residential Purchase Agreement and Joint Escrow Instructions. Okay, joint. And that means joint because by the buyer and the seller both signing this document, those are providing the instructions to the escrow officer on what to do. Okay. For use in a single-family residential property, attached or detached. Okay, that's what this form is used for. Um, next thing it says down here, it says joint escrow instructions. The form includes the buyer and the seller instructions to, to escrow holder for one to four residential units. Remember, this is for one to four. Also remember that the way laws are written, most of the time, they're written in such a way that we protect consumers. So that's why you'll find out there are certain types of forms that are written certain ways and apply to certain properties because we want to protect the consumers. The date <clears throat> says do not use numbers to denote the date. Use actual months. 1203 could mean it could mean either January 2nd, 03 in the United States, but in but February 1st in European countries. I'm here to tell you that there are a whole bunch of different ways that people have written dates over the years. There's the military way of doing dates. There, people will put year first, then month, then day. Some people will put year, then day, then month. The thing is, is it gets to be very, very confusing on how to do it. 
In fact, I still to this day, anytime I'm going to do something that's associated with the military, I have to stop and think for a minute how that date has to be laid out. Also, in Europe, it's different. You could have somebody that's from another country that sits there and looks at that date and doesn't, doesn't understand, you know, thinks it's a different date. So what's important they're saying to you is that what you should do is put June 14, 2003, write the whole month out so they know it's June, okay? Um, at Costa Mesa, California, in other words, where it's actually located, you want to spell that out. Very, very important, okay? Um, it says uh, the, date, the date of preparation is usually the date the buyer signs the offer and the earnest money is received. Note, however, that the, that the key date is the date the final acceptance by the buyer, which must be personally communicated. The date of acceptance is the date from which all dates specified in the form are counted. So all that essentially means is this, that we're, initially we make an offer. When we make the offer, we say time is of the essence. You have 48 hours to sign the agreement. We send it to, you know, our agent runs over, gives it to the listing agent. Listing agent shows it to the seller. Seller either agrees to it or doesn't agree to it or turns around and counteroffers back, whatever. The important point is all of those dates, in other words, those dates that are in the contract are from the date that the contract is actually signed, the date that it's signed and accepted, okay? Because otherwise, we could be, we could be negotiating back and forth for months, <laughs> but it's the date that we finally say, today's the date. I'm signing. This is the date. From now on is, is, the, is when the clock starts running. Okay, which means that if we put something in the contract like, like the, that, that the buyer has 17 days to obtain financing, that means that the day that that's signed and accepted, that's the date that the 17 days starts, not the date that you started the negotiation. And you may say, well, why is that important? It's important because you've got to be really clear with clients. You don't want to say, well, I thought I had another two days. No, you didn't have another two days. The date that you've got to get rocking and rolling, you have to have your financing lined up. You have to have that done within that period of time. Okay. Um, the word at means the city where the document is drafted, not where the property is located. Okay. Essentially, that's another thing. It's not uncommon for you to take and have people come to your office in Sacramento, be talking about maybe wanting to buy a house in Cameron Park, El Dorado Hills, uh, uh, Roseville, you take them up and you show them that property. So they come into your office in Sacramento. You take them up to Roseville. You show them some houses. They love the houses, <laughs> or they love one of the houses. And you decide that what you're going to do, because you worked so hard that day, that you're all hungry and you're going to stop at Frank Fats in El Dorado Hill. No, in Folsom, okay? Or in, uh, you know, let's say, you know, in Folsom, okay? Which Folsom happens to be a city, okay? So where you're actually signing the agreement that night is in Folsom. You've been to three different places, but you're signing it in Folsom, okay? That's where you're signing it. You're not saying where the property is located. You're saying where you're signing it, okay? Very important. Um, the next thing that they put in here, talking about the offer, they say offer. This is an offer from whoever the name of the buyer is, Walter and Debbie Buyer, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, you know, full names of the people that are buying, full names. Um, the real property is uh, to be acquired is described as, and then this is a common address, like I can't read what this address says, but it's something like, uh, I guess, 264 Beach Lane or something like that. 
So in other words, that is the actual address of where the property is located. Then they have down here the assessor's parcel number. The assessor's parcel number is the number that you can get. You should, you know, if you need to have that number, that number should be a number that you can very quickly get from a title insurance company or you can get from the listing broker. Um, it's located in Costa, uh, Costa Mesa County, uh, uh, Costa Mesa, the county of Orange in California. The purchase price, you're writing it out like you did in a longhand check so that there's no, again, so there's no misunderstanding. In this case, the price is 800000 and there's no cents. Then you're going to write the number out, and the close of escrow is going to be on or is going to, shall occur on and then give the date. Okay, and in this case, they're giving you uh, 90 days after the acceptance. So if I make the offer today, and it's not accepted until this Friday. That means that we're talking about closing escrow from the date of the acceptance of the offer, which would be this Friday. In other words, so if I presented it today on Tuesday, but it wasn't accepted until Thursday, or I mean Friday, that would be the date that the clock starts, the 90 days starts. Okay. Down below this, they just give you some more information. They say offer the buyer the offer buyer. Um, Offer buyers identifies the document as the offer from a named buyer, which may be accepted by the named seller to be creating a contract. Real property to be acquired, as I talked about. You know, you have to uh, describe that. Purchase price and the close of escrow. When are you basically going to take title to it? You know, one of the things that you're going to find in real estate is that you're going to sit there and talk philosophically. Buyers and sellers and you and the agents are going to talk about a lot of different things. It's kind of like going out to buy a car. You know, what kind of car do you want? I want a green one. You want leather seats in it? You want this? What do you want? Then finally, the whole part idea is that you're going to buy the car. You're going to sit down and write out a contract that, okay, I'm going to buy the car today. Okay, so what's important is, is that, yes, I'm going to buy it. You set the date down. You start writing the contract out, okay? Financing, very, 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 probably I would even put over there in the extremely important area. <laughs> I don't know any other way. Um, if you are working, this is where you want to have a very good uh, uh, mortgage person, if you will, somebody that you can pick up the phone with and start a conversation with. And even if the deal doesn't go through then, they're going to be able to help you out to get the clients qualified. And the reason why I say that is you could have a mortgage guy on the other end that will help you and then find out that the clients work for Bank of America, Wells Fargo, somebody else, and realize they can get some better deal there. But the point is you have to have somebody that you can talk to that can help you get qualified. Financing is very important. And there are a whole bunch of stuff that has to be done in financing that can take up the time. You know, if somebody may, for example, maybe they have perfect credit report. Maybe they have, they're employed by the state of California and Kaiser Hospital and they've worked there for a gazillion years and they make really good money and they're, they have income tax statements and they, you know, they're really good. They're well documented, well proven. But then you can find, for example, somebody has their own business. That becomes a problem because now you're talking about how in the world do I take and get those people qualified? I'm going to need some other stuff. I may need some financial statements from them, some income tax statements. Uh, they may have a credit problem. That credit problem could either be could be possibly real or maybe could be a mistake. In other words, 
they could either actually maybe they do have bad credit or or they have a credit problem or maybe there's something that just got stuck on their credit report and they need to get resolved that never got taken off uh, you know so there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be taken care of regarding financing so it says here I'm going to try to read this it says finance turns obtaining the loans below is is a contingency of this agreement unless either and then it gives you as check below otherwise agreed to in writing buyers shall act diligently and in good faith to obtain designated loans obtaining deposit down payment and closing costs is not a contingency buyer represents that funds will be in good uh, will be good when deposited with the escrow holder. All, all that's essentially saying is, is that the buyer is going to work very hard to get their financing lined up. Very, very hard. Um, in a marketplace, it's my personal feeling that if you want your seller, you're, you're in a much better negotiating position, in my opinion, if your buyers already know that they have the financing lined up, they know they can qualify. If necessary, they can submit a letter from the lender to say, I am qualified. Because think about it for a minute. If you're sitting there as in a listing, you're trying to sell your house, and you've got one person that comes in and it gives you an offer and says, listen, I'm fully qualified. Here's a letter from my lender. I'm ready to rock and roll. You've got another guy that turns around and says, you know, well, I'm going to kind of work on it a little bit. And you're looking at two offers. The one that's already qualified is the one that's going to be in a stronger position. Okay, a much stronger position to take. In fact, that position could even be worth some money. You know, you could actually probably say, you know, if you're selling a house and you've got one buyer that's making you an offer that you know is fully qualified for $350,000, and you've got another buyer that's making an offer for $360,000, but it's questionable whether or not they're going to get their financing, there's a good chance that they may want to take the one that's the bird in the hand. This guy is ready to go. He's got his financing lined up. Very important. Uh, financing. Obtaining specific loans is a contingency of the agreement unless it is otherwise a cash offer or specified that obtaining a loan is not a contingency. If the contingency fails, the buyer need not perform and is not liable for breach of contract, therefore getting the deposit back unless any expenses already incurred. The important point here is the fact that, you know, if you leave that door open for that buyer to fool around to get their financing, and then they come in the last minute and say, well, Jesus, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to get it, you have pulled your house off the market. <laughs> you have taken it off the market. That's why it is so dead serious that these people are qualified. And that's why it's so important that when you are qualified, you want to make sure to make that understood when you make the offer that you are ready to go. Um, down below it says obtaining deposit, down payment, closing costs, and buyers promise that funds will be good are not contingencies. Okay, okay. What it says is obtaining the deposit. Okay, in other words, deposit means, in other words, your initial deposit is the consideration that ties the contract up. That money should be there. You don't make a contract contingent on the fact that someday you're going to show up with some money in your pocket. You know, now you can make a contract where you say, "Okay, I'm going to make this offer, and here is five thousand dollars earnest money deposit." That is my that is my consideration. And you could also make a statement in there that says, "Listen, after the contingencies are removed, I'll agree to raise my deposit." But the fact is, you need you you know you that contract is not a contract unless it's got money to go along with it. 
Uh, same thing, it's understood that the down payment, the closing costs, and the buyer's promise that the funds will be good are not contingencies. In other words, a buyer can't come in the last minute and say, oh, by the way, um, I don't have enough money to close the deal. That's not a contingency, okay? In other words, a that is not a contingency. It's understood that when they make that purchase offer and you put the contingency down, which are like termite inspections, getting loans and stuff like that, once those are approved, you move on. They can't come down the last minute and turn around and say, well, I don't have the money to pay for the escrow fees. That's not a contingency. That's what they're saying. Down below here, you have your initial deposit on the contract. It says initial deposit. Buyer has given a deposit in the amount of, and you're going to specify what that is, in this case it's $10,000, to the agent submitting the offer, okay, or to whoever that happens to be, um, and made payable to who it's made payable to. In this case, it's ABC Escrow Company. You're going to find out a lot of times, depending upon the brokerage, they may not even want to put it in their trust account. They may just say, you know what, make it out to the title company. Is the standard thing. You know, that way it just goes directly to them. Because if I put it in my trust account, then I'm going to end up having to get it over there anyway. It's a lot easier just to make it out to the title company. Okay. Which, and then it says after that, which shall be held until acceptance and then deposited within three business days after acceptance. So in other words, when you, essentially what's ending up happening is, is that this, when you receive that money, you have a certain, you really wouldn't, put it in escrow until um, until the offer is accepted, okay? Because you don't have a contract until it's accepted. What you're doing is you're making it out and you're saying that you're going to deposit it into the escrow company once the offer is accepted. Um, okay, so then after that, it just says initial deposit. The deposit is given to the agent submitting the offer or the agent's name is inserted in the blank. The pay of the check is indicated on the blank line, usually the broker of the title. Or escrow officer, the amount is written in numbers in the right-hand column, okay? And then after that, it says funds received must be deposited within three business days after acceptance of the offer according to the directions unless instructed otherwise in writing. And then after this is just your trust fund account. Commingling in the money is prohibited and may be subject to broker dis disciplinary action. So all that essentially means is that when you receive that money, if you put it in your trust account for the brokerage, you... That has to be in a trust account. In other words, you can't put it in an account where, you know, that account is is only for deposits kind of money, clients' money. You can't be paying your car payment out of there. You can't be, uh, you know, it's just strictly for, for clients' business. That's it. In fact, the only money I think that's allowed for you to have in that account is just a couple hundred dollars. I always have to go back and check, and that's just to pay for the normal banking costs you know, like bank fees, checks, stuff like that. That's it, nothing else. Um, this little statement down here says uh, this is if you're going to have the ability to increase the money. So it says increased deposit buyer shall deposit with the escrow holder and increased deposit in the amount of. An increased deposit is usually something in the format of uh, where, where maybe the initial amount is rather small. And what you're doing is you're asking the buyer, in my opinion, to show good faith by putting more money down. Okay? And so here it says, um, increased deposit, a separate receipt for increased deposit at the time that it is paid is required in order to increase the amount of deposit included in the amount of liquid dam liquidated damages. 
All that means is that one, if they give you more money, if you give them $10,000 and now there's something that they're going to increase the amount of money as a deposit down the road, then you're going to have to give them some other receipt to show that they actually received it or that you received it. Okay? Um, looking at the clock here, this part here is talking about the first loan. This is talking about how much it's going to be for. Um, Notice that in this case, and, and again, this is dependent upon you seeing it in your book, the loan amount is going to be for $640,000. That is the loan amount that you're borrowing. If I did the math really quickly, that essentially tells me that I'm financing about 80% of the purchase price of the property. Okay, because if I do the old 8 times 6 is, you know, do the old math, I'll, I'll figure that out. But anyway, it's about $640,000 is the amount of the loan. It says that the buyer, what the buyer is going to do is they're going to get a new, a new deed of trust in the favor of the lender, encumbering the property, securing the loan, payable in the uh, maximum interest rate of 8%. The reason what, why we're putting a maximum is that when the buyer gets ready to go for their financing, if for some unknown reason the interest rates go up, or and another thing that can happen too is, is that let's say they do have some kind of credit problem of some sort. Many times lenders will not just deny you the loan. What they'll do is they'll say, oh, by the way, uh, your score wasn't quite high enough, but we have somebody that'll take care of that for you. His name is Joe. Let me give you Joe's phone number. You get Joe's phone number, you call them up, and you, will they be, be willing to lend you the money? They will. But is there going to be a higher interest rate? Yes, there is. Well, that higher interest rate now, if it's in excess of what this initial rate is, because that's what you felt you need, you know, you, know, you, you couldn't go any higher than that, um, or you wouldn't be able to make the payment. This is a way of saying, listen, I can't get a loan for that amount of money for 8% or less. It's going to cost me more, so this is a way for me to get out of it. Also, you're putting in here 8% um, fixed rate or a percentage uh, of an adjustable rate if you're going to go for that. Uh, so in other words, all the basic rates, how many years it's going to be for, this is for 30 years, and this is going to be the points. What you're doing is you're putting all the basic parameters of the loan. You're going to get a $640,000 loan, not to exceed 8% interest, no more than two points. Okay, that's essentially what you're doing. You're limiting down what you're going to do. So anyway, that's what all of this stuff talks about here. Um, this part here talks about additional financing terms. Okay, and let me see if I can zoom out on this. It says additional seller, seller financing. So if you're going to have the seller do some kind of financing, or you were going to assume any existing loans. Now, when this paragraph would come into play is typically when the interest rates get too high for the average buyer to be able to pull the deal off, or you have an attractive loan that you're going to get an assumption. And remember, assumptions are very important that the client understands what they mean by assumption, both the listing, the people that are selling and the people that are buying it. So my, my concept of a full assumption means that I am taking the client into the lender's office the lender is asking for all of the financial information that was necessary for me to get the loan in the beginning so that they make sure that these people can financially handle the loan. 
And then finally, I'm asking the lender to take me off the loan and put them in, called the substitution of liability. Okay? But anyway, you'll see a paragraph come up like this if we start having really, really difficult financing problems coming on. That's what we're talking about here. Um, this paragraph here is just talking about how we're going to handle the balance of the purchase price. In other words, uh, what's going to happen here is that we have, um, it says the balance of the purchase price will be deposited with the escrow holder within sufficient time to close the escrow, write the amount in the column. So what it is is the purchase price is $800,000. There's $150,000 additional money that's going to be coming into the transaction, and the rest of the money is going to be coming from the new loan. And you may say, you know, where does that $150,000 come from? That $150,000 can be coming from the sale of an existing home. It's not uncommon after people own uh, their second or third house that they have a consider, especially in California, they have a considerable amount of equity in their home. So what they have to do is they sell their house, and that $150,000 is going to come from the sale of their house. Or... This $150,000 could come from, uh, if they had checked it from uh, a second loan of some sort. Okay? So that's what this is. And then this basically right here says the total purchase price, add the amounts together. That's just talking about what this is right here. Okay? And we're getting not too far from the end. We only have a couple of minutes to go. Um, down here is the loan application. It says, if the buyer does not provide the letter from the lender showing the buyer is either pre-qualified or pre-approved within seven days after the acceptance or the number of days inserted in the blank, the seller may cancel the agreement. That's what this paragraph is. And again, the reason why, the reason why you want to do that, absolutely important, is because of the fact that once you accept that offer, you start a whole bunch of stuff running. You know, you got, have to go to MLS. You have to pull the property out off the market. You have to put a sign on there like pending sale. Uh, you have to let all the people know that it's, you know, don't bother showing it anymore. So that's why I really can't overemphasize enough how important it is to make darn sure the person is qualified to get the loan and qualify, everything. They're qualified to get everything. Very, very important. And uh, this is giving them so many days to perform whatever that particular activity is. So we're going to stop here on this page, which uh, according to mine is page 222. And uh, next time we'll pick up from that page and finish up the rest of the chapter. With that, thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you back here again for show 12. Bye-bye.